Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. The book of James, we've been here for several weeks. We're calling this series Gospel on the Ground. James chapter 2, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one underneath a chair rack nearby. Find that, locate it, grab it, tap your neighbor on the shoulder, say, hey, can you give me that Bible that's underneath the chair? They'll pass it to you. Page 951 will get you right to James chapter 2. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, take that copy. It's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you have God's Word in your hand and in your home. If you have a physical copy open, if you have a digital copy on, let me encourage you to keep it open. Keep it on. We are going to study this text today. Before we jump in to chapter 2, I do want to give you some pre-notes, if I could. Now, some of you take notes very, very seriously. As a matter of fact, some of you have more notes at the end of one of my sermons than I do. And so I want to give you some pre-notes, so don't get carried away. We're going to get the big idea, but it's not yet. Let me give you some things before the notes, because we are about to enter into one of the most significant texts in the book of James. And so because there's so much in here and it's so packed, I've got to give you a few things by way of introduction to the text before we actually dig in and study the text. So here are my pre-notes, three of them. Number one, James, Pastor James, who's the writer of this particular letter, he's writing to some misguided Christians. They're Jewish Christians who were under the law, and now they have done the proverbial pendulum swing. The term that theologians use is antinomianism. That because I'm under grace, and because Jesus has forgiven me of all of my sins, I don't have to do anything for God. Or I can do whatever I want, and it doesn't matter. So Pastor James is, is addressing some of that, and he's dealing with some of that in this particular passage that we are going to read. Number two, James and Paul, who is another writer of the New Testament, don't disagree about salvation. This particular text that we are going to study caused the great Martin Luther to say, I will not have the book of James in my Bible. Because he thought that James disagreed with Paul when it came to salvation. But he doesn't. And I want to show it to you. First of all, in chapter 1, we studied this two weeks ago, verse 18, James actually articulates the gospel. He says, of his, God's, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, which as we studied, that is the gospel, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is a work of God in the heart and the life of an individual that the sovereign God works and moves so that dead men can come to life. That's the same as what Paul articulated in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So John MacArthur, who's a pastor and a modern-day theologian, says about this particular issue that James and Paul are not standing face-to-face -face confronting each other, but they are actually standing back-to-back -back fighting common enemies. Paul is fighting the enemy of works-based righteousness. James is fighting the enemy of easy believism. That's the second pre-note. James and Paul don't disagree about salvation. Number three, the gospel always transforms. 
The gospel always affects and changes the way that we live. The gospel is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. But once the Spirit of God takes up residence and you become a new creation, old things are passing away and all things are becoming new, which means you start living a different kind of a life. You're transformed, you're changed because of Jesus taking up residence in your life. Jesus spoke about a tree being known by its fruit. John said, if we say that we know God but walk in darkness, we lie. Peter says, be holy as God is holy. In other words, live in accordance with the new character and nature that you have. And then Paul would say, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel because belief will always affect behavior. That's the pre-notes. That's just getting us set up for the text. So works cannot produce faith, but faith, true saving faith, will always produce works. So let's read it now. James chapter 2. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Verse 14 is the thesis for the entire book. Can that faith, he's not saying can faith save him, but can that faith, in other words, that kind of faith, the kind of faith that doesn't work, it's a rhetorical question, the answer is no. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May the Spirit of God now help us to make application on this text. Here's the big idea. And we're going to seek to tie every part of this text back to this big idea. True saving faith is functional faith. True saving faith is functional faith. It works. It functions. It does something, it manifests, it shows itself. True saving faith. Now have you ever had something that malfunctioned on you? It stopped working or it broke or it was supposed to do something and it didn't perform in the way that you thought or expected that it was going to perform? A couple of years ago I installed an alarm system in our home. And I had the door sensors, I had the window sensors, I had the keypad, I even had one of those little cameras. Those things are great for spying on your kids by the way. 
You put that in your living room, and you're upstairs, and they're downstairs, and you hear something going on. You just get on the phone. You get on the app. I see you. <laughs> you know, and they, like, jump in the living room. It's great. It's phenomenal. We got the app. We got it all set up. Only one problem with that, with that alarm system is it doesn't work consistently. It's not, it's not functioning consistently. Now, there's this expectation of what it is supposed to do. It's supposed to protect my family. It's supposed to uh, be, allow me to set that alarm at night or when we're away. I can do that through the app. I can do that through the keypad. There are certain things that alarm is supposed to do. But that alarm system is of no use to me so long as it's not functioning. And i got to tell you, if you've ever been in that particular situation where you're expecting something to do something and it malfunctions, it's frustrating. This is supposed to work, and it's not. But for me, with that alarm, it's actually not just frustrating, it's even dangerous. Because the function that it's supposed to serve is also supposed to protect my family and our belongings when we're away. Do you know what's more dangerous than an alarm system that's not functioning? Is a faith that doesn't function. Because ultimately, ultimately, if you drill down with what Pastor James is saying, is if you have a faith that is never functioning at all, you don't have true saving faith. True saving faith is functional faith. So the evidence of this kind of saving faith, it's not just in what you say, it is also in what you show. And so what do I do when my alarm system starts malfunctioning? Well, I troubleshoot it. And one of the ways that I troubleshoot it is I go to the function and I work my way back. In other words, I go to the door sensor. Or I go to the window sensor. Or I go to the router, the Wi-Fi, to make sure that it's properly connected. I go to the function and then I troubleshoot and I work my way back. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start at the function of saving faith. The work, if you will. The doing of saving faith. And we're going to work our way back. Because the doing and the work is evidence of the faith. If you have the function, you have the faith. So true saving faith is functional faith. So here's the question we want to ask. How does true saving faith function? And that's what our text is going to answer this morning. So true saving faith is functioning when? That's what it's going to look like this morning if you're keeping notes. Three ways we see it functioning. Number one, true saving faith is functioning when I move from sympathy to action. I move from sympathy to action. Look at verse 15 of our text. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, you can't help but see that this is an extension of the conversation he had last week on partiality. People are walking into the church, and, and in the beginning of chapter 2, they're saying, okay, you're poor, so you sit over here. Oh, you're wealthy, you come sit down here in one of these premier seats. And now, there are these poor Christians within the church, and that partiality is continuing to them. Basic necessities were needed, and basic necessities were being neglected. They were poorly clothed. The, the essence of that word is that they were essentially naked. They, they, they had just the, the, the bare essentials on. They, were, they didn't have enough clothing. And then they were lacking in daily food. I love that adjective because it helps us to understand what was going on. They, they just didn't even have the means by which to have a meal. 
And what was their response? James says, you're not even giving them the things needed for the body. God is interested in our physical needs. So to add insult to injury, what do they do? This is what they say. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. It's like driving up to an intersection when it's pouring down rain and there's a homeless person there with a piece of cardboard over their head trying to keep himself dry. And you roll down the window as you drive by and say, God bless you. You might as well just not say anything. Be warmed and filled while they don't have clothes and they don't have food. The idea here is that the people who are saying this, they have the means. They are not poor and naked and hungry. They have the means to meet that need. So Pastor James asks this question, what good is that? <laughs> it's almost sarcastic. Of what benefit? That's what the word good means. What benefit? What function does that serve? That somebody comes in and they have basic needs and you're not meeting the needs and all you're saying is, God bless you, I'll pray for you. Willful negligence is a heart problem. There's something deeper going on underneath here. Uh, John in 1 John is going to beat this same drum. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. John says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, another brother or sister in Christ, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John is saying, we studied this a couple of months ago, John is saying it doesn't. If that is the habitual, continual habit of someone who is claiming to be a follower of Jesus and they're not willing to meet physical needs, they're closing up their heart towards them. John's essentially saying and alluding to the same reality that James does. Jesus, listen to his scathing rebuke. In Matthew 25, verse 42, Jesus says, I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Are you okay with other people not being okay? We've got to move beyond sympathy. Sympathy is a great place to start. That somebody else is hurt in my heart. That's the definition of sympathy. You're seeing it. You're feeling it. That's good. But does it stop there? True followers of Jesus don't watch brothers and sisters continue to struggle with real, physical, tangible needs when we have the ability to help. Functional faith moves to meet real needs. What does this look like? Let me give you three admonitions for, for, for those of us who call City Point Church home. What does it look like to move towards our brothers and sisters in need, to not just have sympathy, but to have saving faith that functions. What does that look like? Three admonitions. Number one, your calendar should be affected by the needs of others. Your calendar. Now sometimes our calendar is more precious to us than our wallet. Our time is valuable. But your calendar, your time, your schedule, your week, your agenda should be affected by the needs of other people. Somebody in this congregation needs you to sit down and listen to them. Somebody needs you to go to a coffee shop and say, let's talk through that. Somebody needs you 
to pour into them what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to how, to how to work through maybe some of their marriage struggles or some of their parenting struggles or some of their loneliness or some of their brokenness or some of their sinful addictions. Somebody needs you to sit down with them and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Your calendar should be affected by the needs of other people. Number two, my second admonition is this. Your budget should be affected by the needs of others. And I don't just mean what you give to the church. I mean what you give from your resources, from your finances. When you see someone in need, I have the ability, I'm going to help meet that need. You may not necessarily be able to meet all of it or as much as you would like to. But as John says, you, you have this world's goods. Like you possess the goods of this world. And you see a brother in need and you, you close up your heart and all you say is, oh, I'll be warmed and filled. How does the love of Christ abide in you? Your budget should be affected by the needs of others. And then number three, your home should be affected by the needs of others. I want to make a statement this morning, and I believe this. Hospitality is not an option for the follower of Jesus. As a matter of fact, we know it's not an option for pastors. Because it actually gets put into the list of qualifications. But for all of us, what is hospitality? Hospitality is not Pinterest and Instagram and perfection. No, hospitality is just open arms. Your home. When is the last time somebody was in your home? A brother or a sister. It's amazing the number of needs that can be met in your living room. Your home. Now you might think, well, my home is not ideal. I know, I know that I'm talking to some folks this morning and you've got a one-room, one-bedroom apartment. Or maybe you rent a room. Like you don't even have like your own bathroom. You're sharing that and you rent a room and you're like, this isn't ideal. Or maybe you've got kids and your home is never clean. And there's always toys and there's always messes. Listen, just throw aside the idea that it has to be an ideal situation for you to be able to practice hospitality. Welcome people into your home and watch as physical, tangible needs in the lives of people will be met as you do that. In 1993, Kevin Carter took a picture that won him a Pulitzer Prize. You've probably seen this picture. In the foreground of this picture, there is a little girl who is hunched over and she is starving. As a matter of fact, you can see her ribs through her skin. And it was the reality of the situation in the famine in Sudan in the early 90s. In the background of this picture, there's a vulture crouched down, waiting for time to do what time does. So in 1993, Kevin Carter won this prize for this picture. And as soon as this picture was posted and people saw it, they began to ask him and they began to really overwhelm him with this question. Did you help the girl? Did you, did you do anything? And Kevin Carter became so overwhelmed by those inquiries that four months after receiving that prize, he took his own life because he did nothing. Sympathy is not enough. Brothers, sisters, loved ones, we are more than just a gathering of people who sing on Sunday mornings. And then go on our merry way. We are family. And when we see our brother or our sister in need and we close up our heart or we say, be warmed and filled, God bless you, I'm praying for you. That is not enough. True saving faith functions 
It moves towards people in need. And so James concludes this portion in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Number two, true saving faith is functioning when I put on display what I believe. I put on display, I show what I say I believe. Look at verse 18. He gives this hypothetical situation. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Like you've got your thing and I've got my thing. You do the faith thing and I do the works thing. And then James offers this challenge. Okay. Well, show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Good luck. True saving faith displays good works. You remember going to those science fairs in school and they had those trifold cardboard, those big cardboard things. Everybody would get this big cardboard thing and they would, they would display the, the, the project that they were working on and everybody would walk through and take a look at that display board. You know what James is saying about the display board of true saving faith? He's saying two things. First of all, if all you have is creedal faith or intellectual faith, you have nothing to really put on the board. You can't really evidence just intellectual knowledge, fact-based faith. But the other thing he's saying is if you do have true saving faith, there's only one thing for you to put on your display board, and that's works. Like how do you display the idea of faith if, you, if your faith does not actually lead you to do something? So the evidence of faith is works. That's what you display. That's what you put on the big cardboard trifold display. Jesus said this in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is just as impossible for someone to say they have faith, saving faith and not be producing works as it is for someone to light a candle and it not to give off light. The light is the evidence that it is lit. The works are the evidence that you have faith in Jesus. We put on display what we believe. Now, James is going to step on some toes here in verse 19. Because what he's going to say in verse 19 is that intellectual or creedal faith, it's the same thing that the demons possess. That's the kind of faith that they have. Look at it in verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. A little more sarcasm there you sense. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I mean, do you still not believe? Do you want an example? Here's an example for you. The demons. They have intellectual faith, but they have no works. No works that display it. You believe that God is one. This is the Shema. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. All of these Jewish Christians would have understood this. They would have had it memorized. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James is saying, you believe that? Good. So does somebody else. Demons. All demons are monotheistic. And you will never be able to convince them otherwise. 
They believe that there is one true supreme God. Are there lesser deities? Yes, they are some of them. But there is one, only one God who is above all other gods, Lord who is above all other lords, King who is above all other kings, and the demons know it. It's up here. It's intellectual. You might say, well, I grew up in church. I went to Sunday school. My grandmom took me to VBS every single summer. Believing facts is not enough to evidence true saving faith. And here's why it's such a dangerous place to be. Because even the intellectual faith works. Meaning intellectual faith goes to church. And intellectual faith does good deeds. And intellectual faith helps people out who have problems. And intellectual faith gives money. Jesus offered this warning in Matthew 7. Again, his Sermon on the Mount. I'll put it up on the screen here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does, there's the work, the one who does the will of my Father. That's what's going to separate the saving faith works from the intellectual faith works. He continues. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, here it is. Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So even this creedal, intellectual, fact-only faith works. Casting out demons in the name of God, doing good deeds... This is why it's so dangerous if you possess knowledge, but there's never actually been this reception of this truth. So all growing up in school, we were always told, check your work. Check your work. Don't turn in that test before you check to make sure you filled in every blank. Don't turn in that project until you make sure all of the necessary things are in that project. Check your work. So here's what I want to ask you this morning or encourage you to do. Check your works. Check them. What kind do you have? Do you have works that evidence saving faith? Or do you have works that only evidence intellectual faith? You say, John, what's the difference? Because there's only two kinds of works. There are works that are an effort to earn something from God. Because I have a knowledge that God exists and maybe there is this fear of Him and this reverence of Him. I don't want to be judged by Him. I don't want to be condemned for Him. So I'm going to work for Him to try to earn something from Him. I want to earn forgiveness or I, I want to earn blessing or I, I, want to, I want to earn some more sunshine in my life. Whatever it might be. I, just, I want some things from God and so I'm going to work for Him. That is the first kind of work an effort to get something from God, and it is man-centered. But the second type of work is a work that is because you have received something from God. In other words, it is a response. It is worship. I have received saving faith from God, and now because He has completed everything on my behalf, now my response to Him is, I want to serve you. And that kind of faith not dependent on man, it's dependent on the Spirit. That kind of faith, I'm sorry, that, those kind of works is not dependent on man, it's dependent on the Spirit. Those kind of works are not fear-based, they are love-based. So check your works. Are you in church today doing things for God because you fear what might happen if you don't? 
that probably goes back to some type of an intellectual understanding of God, but it's not based in a true, saving, forgiven, redeemed faith. Don't serve God because you want to get something from God or you're afraid that he might do something bad to you if you don't. Serve God because he has forgiven you and washed away your sin and given you a relationship with himself and now gifted you the spirit of God that enables you and empowers you to live each day for him. You display what you believe. If you believe that your works are going to earn you something from God, you are displaying that you don't truly understand who God is. And if you are displaying works that are a response to all that he's already done, then you are actually displaying a belief that he has done the work of salvation for you, and now we just worship him in response. True saving faith functions. It is functioning when I move from sympathy to action. It is functioning when I put on display what I believe. And number three, it is functioning when I live by a faith works mixture. When I live by a faith works mixture. I want to look at verses 21 through 25. We read it at the beginning. I want to read it again. And then I want to really untangle some knots. Because this is the particular passage that causes scholars consternation. Do James and Peter believe a different type of justification? Verse 21, see it there. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, the faith that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled, this is Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Two examples. By the way, these are the most two extreme examples that you can find in the scripture. You have Abraham, who is the patriarch of the Jewish people, and you have, a Rahab, you have Rahab, who is a Gentile harlot. And both of them are essentially being used as an example of the same thing. So let's untie some knots. The first knot I want to untie is that the word justified here has two different meanings. To be justified means to be declared right with God. That is how Paul mostly uses it in the book of Romans. But to be justified also means to be vindicated or to be proven. And that is the case that James is using here. That our works prove, justify our faith. And so think of it this way. When James says that Abraham was justified by works, our works justify us before men. Our faith justifies us before God. Just as Jesus said of the false teachers, you'll recognize them by their fruits. The fruit justified them and proved them as false teachers. And so those of us who have true saving faith, we will be justified, we will be proven to, ex to have that faith through our good works. But the second knot to untangle here is the chronology. And I think if we just understand the chronology of events in these, the lives of these two people, we'll understand what's going on here. Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, which is what's quoted here in James's text, he is declared righteous because God makes a promise 
and he believes the promise, and it is, it, is, it is counted to him as righteousness, Genesis chapter 15. Seven chapters later, he is asked by God to sacrifice his son on the altar, and that's what James is talking, to, talking about. So the, the sacrifice of his son on the altar in Genesis 22 is the proof that he put faith in God in Genesis chapter 15. Just understand the chronology of those two events. One happened before the other. Same thing with Rahab. In Joshua chapter 2, in verse 11, she declares that she believes that there is one true God. Then after she declares that, you see her hiding the spies. The works are taking place after the faith. And so for both Abraham and Rahab, they possessed saving faith before proving it through their works. And so the Christian life, as we see with Abraham and with Rahab should be a mixture, a combination of both faith and works. Two cycle engines take a mixture of fuel and gas. I'm sorry, fuel and oil. And so whether it's a weed whacker or a leaf blower or a dirt bike, those smaller two cycle engines, engines require that you take gas and oil and you mix them together and you put them into the same compartment. There are not two separate compartments, one for fuel and one for oil. So it is in the life of a Christian. It is not that we are trying to compartmentalize and separate that fa separate faith over here and works over here, but it is a mixture of the two. As you live on mission for Jesus this week, it is a combination of both faith and works in your life. And what happens when you put that two-part mixture together? Look at verse 22. This is so cool to see this. Verse 22, in the life of Abraham, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. So what's going on here? Well, together, faith and works are strengthening each other. Active along with. Those three words translate one word in the original text, synergio. It's the word from, we, from which we get our word, synergy. The idea that two horses can pull more weight together than the sum of their parts. The idea of faith and works is that you can do more with the combination of faith and works mixed together in your life than just faith by itself or just works by itself. They're working together along with one another. Abraham is seeing faith and works play out in his life. So listen, as you go to work this week, and as you go to your job, and as you go to your responsibilities, and as you go to the things that you have to do, mix faith and works together. You are going to have to go to that coworker and say, will you be my guest on Easter Sunday morning? But don't do that without full dependence on God. Don't just do the work. Have the faith. But also, don't just have the faith and believe that, well, somehow that coworker is going to find out about Easter Sunday morning services here at City Point Church. You also have to go and actually open your mouth and invite them. It is the works, it is the faith, it is the combination of the two, and together you can do more for the kingdom of God than those two can do by themselves. An unstoppable force. But also in verse 22, we see that faith was completed by his works. We studied that word completed in chapter 1. It has this idea of perfection maturity. So the works are maturing the faith. If you feel like in your life that your faith 
needs some growth. Your faith has become stagnant. Your faith is, doesn't seem to be moving in any positive direction. Let me encourage you with this. Do something for God. Get involved. Serve in some capacity. Come to a homeless Saturday and, and serve the homeless of our city a breakfast or help them uh, find their way to where the showers are or the laundry are. Go on a missions trip. Give financially. Like do something and watch because as you start to do things, as you start to work, your works complete and mature and perfect your faith. So if you're just sitting stagnant and not doing anything for God, maybe that's the reason why you feel like there's not any spiritual development taking place in your life. We have two fruit trees in our backyard. One is a three-year-old orange tree, and the other is a 30-something-year-old grapefruit tree. I wasn't there when they planted that one, so I don't know exactly how old that is, but I did plant the orange tree three years ago. Two trees. One is three years old, one is 30 years old. Can you guess which one has more fruit? That grapefruit tree is just, they're falling off, literally. I think twice a year we're pulling fruit off of that tree. Because that fruit is evidence of the maturity of that tree. Fruit is the mark of maturity. So in your life and in my life, works are the fruit. Works mature our faith, and mature faith produces more works. And so the mixture... Faith and works, active and maturing in your life. So he says in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So here's that big idea again. True saving faith is functional faith. It does something. True saving faith is functioning when I move from sympathy to action, meeting real needs. When I put on display what I believe, not just intellectual, not just facts up in the mind, but it's actually making its way into my life. True saving faith is functional when I live by a faith works mixture. The only thing worse for me than having a malfunctioning alarm system is thinking that I have an alarm system, but not having one at all. So the only thing worse than having a saving faith that maybe at sometimes gets a little lazy or complacent or isn't working is thinking that you have a saving faith, but the lack of works is actually evidence that you don't have it at all. So take inventory. James says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And so do you have the evidence of saving faith through works in your life? If the answer to that question is yes, good. Keep doing and producing and showing and bearing out the evidence of good works. If the answer is no, you either have saving faith, but the gospel has not infiltrated, or you may not have saving faith at all. You may know some facts. You may have some information. You may have gone to some classes when you were a kid. You may have been baptized. You may have sat in church for some time. You've got information. You believe that God is one, well, so do the demons. And if your works are your effort to try to earn something from God, that might be evidence that you only have intellectual faith 
rather than works that are a response to everything you've already received from God. So that takes us right into our learning to live questions. And this is my first question this morning for you to consider. Do you have saving faith? True saving faith. I hope this text has helped to make clear what that would look like and how that would function. Do you possess that? I'm not asking, do you believe in God? I'm not asking, did you grow up in church? I'm not even asking if you prayed a prayer at some point in your life. But do you truly possess what we see in Scripture as true saving faith? And if you don't, today you can possess that. Because true saving faith, as it sounds, comes by faith in Jesus. Faith in His work, not in yours. Faith in what He did on the cross, not in what you try to produce and manufacture for Him. And so if you were sitting here and you were thinking, I don't know that I possess that, John. Today, by faith in Jesus' work, you can have true saving faith. Believe Him. Trust Him. Come to Him today. Number two, my second question for you is this. If you do have saving faith and you are a follower of Jesus, what has your saving faith been putting on display? What evidence of that saving faith has been seen? What fruit is hanging from your tree? Are there good works on display? Or are you saying to a brother or sister, God bless you, be warmed and filled? Are faith and works mixing in your life? Are you seeing the evidence of that? What fruit is being born? Let the Spirit of God produce more fruit through that fruit, God is glorified. And then number three, where do faith and works need to mix to move mission forward? This is a personal question. This isn't where do faith and works need to mix in our church corporately, but where do faith and works need to mix in your life individually and personally? Yes, God wants to do something. Yes, God can do something. You have the faith to believe that. But are you moving toward that? Are you doing something in response to that faith? Allow faith and works to mix in your life and watch as God moves mission forward in your life. True saving faith is functional. Let's not just possess thing that never actually manifests itself and functions in any capacity in our life. If you do, in fact, possess saving faith, you will manifest that saving faith. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you for this text, and we know that there are some knots maybe that seem to be tangled here, but yet as we study it, clarity comes, and we can better understand what it is that you are saying. And so, Lord, help us as followers of yours to not just possess something, but to allow that to be borne out in our life, evidenced in real, practical, tangible ways. Whatever your spirit needs to do today, I pray that you would do it in our midst. Whatever decisions need to be made, whatever actions need to be taken, if there's somebody here and they're sitting here under the sound of my voice and maybe they've got a knowledge of you, but they don't truly possess saving faith, I pray that today your spirit would turn that light on, cause them to see and to understand that it's only by faith in the finished work of Jesus that we can be saved. Well, thank you for what you do, for what you continue to do, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. 
To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.